The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. We're coming at you remotely. We are not in the studio this morning due to the nationwide uh, lockdown measures that are in place in response to the coronavirus pandemic. But I do have with me um, by Skype, Dr. Joseph A. Piper, who's calling in from his home office. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. And we thank the Lord we've got these modern conveniences. Today, we're going to focus on a number of questions from our listeners as part of our ongoing faith and practice segment. And these questions deal specifically with the COVID-19 19 or coronavirus pandemic. And uh, Dr. Piper, before we dive into these, would you please pray for our time together? Glorious God in heaven, you who are most excellent and glorious, clothed in all majesty and power, a God of, of perfect wisdom, love, and goodness, we bow before you, Lord, in these days that are difficult times uh, for our country and for the world. We thank you that we I confess that you are on the throne and do it all things well. We thank you, Lord, that even though we're hindered in many ways from that which is normal in our lives, that uh, we live in a country where we are uh, encapsulated in so many conveniences with warmth and food and, and uh, things that many in the world under this virus lack. Thank you as well, Lord, for technology that enables us to pursue the ministry at the seminary, the podcast, the classes, as well as our churches streaming live. We thank you that we can redeem the technology from so much of its abuse, Lord, and ask that you will bless these means as well. Forgive us of our sins, of our fear and distrust, of our grumbling. Help us to look to you with expectancy. And now we ask for the Spirit to enable us to talk about these important issues and uh, by your grace, give further clarity. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. We're going to dive into our questions here with our first question from Pastor Benny Castle of Grace OPC in Lynchburg, Virginia. Benny asks, what principles should a pastor in session use in determining to suspend or continue services during an outbreak? And what are good historical sources in the Reformed Orthodox tradition that speak to those principles or provide examples we can glean from? Thank you. Thank you, Benny. Um, and there's a, a number of questions like this, and I've received others, have phone calls and uh, emails as well. It is an important issue. Um, one principle we begin in considering this is the uh, God, in his promise, never puts us in a case where one commandment would cause us to sin against another commandment. And so never do we break one of God's holy laws in order to keep another one. So we have to weigh then. We have three commandments in particular here. We have the commandment with respect to the Sabbath, and that would include the commandment then with respect to corporate worship. We have uh, the fifth commandment, our responsibility to be in submission to the government. But we have the sixth commandment as well, that only we to take proper precautions to preserve our own lives, but the lives of others. So we have to put these things uh, in a scale. But also, I would bring to your attention that 
part of Sabbath keeping, not just an exception, but in the confession uh, when it discusses Sabbath keeping, uh, are deeds of necessity uh, and mercy. I think that's very interesting so that uh, we would never observe the Sabbath in a way that would violate uh, those principles. Let me read you the particular paragraph. It's paragraph 8 in the chapter on Sabbath and worship. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, thoughts, about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of His worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, as we weigh this, we see that uh, uh, there's not a conflict here. So, put it on a personal level, you're, um, you're homesick or your wife is sick with the virus or any other illness, and you need to miss corporate worship to stay home and take care of her, or you need to uh, leave and take one of your children to, uh, to the hospital. So, uh, these are acts of necessity and mercy and are part of keeping the Sabbath. So, yes, corporate worship, we miss corporate worship for any number of reasons. We miss corporate worship because of illness. Um, we miss corporate worship, uh, perhaps a car broke down and, and we couldn't get there or something uh, like that. Um, and it's not a sin if out of keeping the Sixth Commandment, uh, or the Fifth Commandment, someone misses corporate worship. Uh, so I don't think it's a sin for a church then, um, as it weighs its responsibility um, to, to be in submission to the government, not in things spiritual, but in things uh, physical and for the safety of the citizens. So just as the state has the right to tell us how many fire extinguishers we should have and uh, special exit doors that are uh, proper because of fire safety, uh, things like that, uh, the state has made a determination that this disease is so uh, virulent and infectious that we need to avoid, for the time being, any kind of close public contact. Um, so I would say that it's our responsibility, since the state must save life uh, and preserve life, that we should submit to the state in terms of that request. The same then with our own precautions. If we're told that public contact is spreading this disease, it seems to me that we would be sinning if, in fact, we persisted in having public contact in corporate worship, endangering the lives of all those who are there. So, I think that it's not wrong. Now, it is interesting, in the state of South Carolina, my wife tells me that the governor has said that he cannot he has made school closings mandatory. He cannot make church closings mandatory because that would violate the Constitution. 
But this is the word of wisdom. And I think elders have acted wisely, even if the government had not done this, to say as, as long as we don't know how rapidly this thing is spreading. As of the day of this podcast, the United States now has the most cases of any country in the world. We don't know how rapidly or even all the ways uh, that it spreads. So in terms of uh, principles from our history, I've thought a bit about that. I, um, during the bubonic plague, I'm sure, of course, that was not, you know, the church wasn't a great church in those days, but church would have been shut by necessity for some period of time. Uh, I don't know, for example, in New Orleans when there'd be a plague. Uh, I know that Palmer visited in the homes of the people that had the plague, but did the church uh, voluntarily then not meet uh, when there was a, a citywide plague? Uh, the biblical precedent would be David's case where he um, himself was exiled and longs for corporate worship, uh, but then recognizes that he can meet with God even uh, in private. Uh, another case would be that if men are aboard ship, uh, they would keep the Sabbath. They wouldn't be working on the Sabbath, and they could have some kind of abbreviated, uh, but it's a deed of necessity, uh, some kind of abbreviated service there on shipboard as well. So I hope for many and the others that are asking this, I think the church has done the right thing in following the request of the government not to have public services. And I think that, you know, it's, we're blessed that we've got the, the, the technology now to be able to stream services. So at least people um, can have access, particularly to uh, hearing the Word of God uh, explained. And now the case is even such in Virginia that Benny and his elders, and I guess anybody that would congregate there, if they were to get together on a Sunday for worship, would be fined $2,500. The, the governor of Virginia just instituted that, uh, I guess, decree, um, if I'm reading the headlines correctly. I haven't looked at all the details there and, and the limitations behind that or even the term for that uh, for that penalty. Well, that would violate the con our Constitution. I would think so. Freedom still of worship and right. peaceful assembly. But the church ought, I think, voluntarily to uh, submit. Dr. Piper, we have a related question from an anonymous listener um, a little bit further down our list here. Perhaps Dr. Piper can address the strong disagreement between Christians speaking online that say one is too accepting of government interference and in telling the church they cannot meet and those who seem to contend for defying such orders. What is the legitimate role of the magistrate in this matter? And regardless of possible government overreach or error, what is the right response for the Christian church? I think you, you've handled that. We seem to be caught in a catch-22. There are two real sins into which we can fall. On the one side, putting lives at risk and knowing and believing the warnings and risks. And then two, on the other side, not gathering to worship the Lord out of an undue fear of, um, of public health crises. I think I've established that the magistrate does have a legitimate role in the preservation of life. There's a lot of things the magistrate does he ought not to be doing. But biblically, he has a very legitimate role in the uh, protection of human life. 
I mean, other things, uh, seatbelts, uh, speeding laws, uh, stop signs. Uh, all of these things are not simply to regulate the flow of traffic, but they're also to uh, make life uh, safer uh, for all of us who are out and about. So the magistrate must watch over the society. The magistrate, not a local church, the magistrate has better access to uh, the dangers that are prevalent. Um, if, uh, in this case, if a group uh, came uh, together. And I'm grieved a bit that there would be such a, an online argument um, about this. Um, the Peter's response to the Sanhedrin is appropriate. We must obey God and not men. And that's when men tell us to disobey God. But what I sought to establish is, is that proper Sabbath keeping includes doing deeds of necessity and mercy. If for some other reason the government forbid us to worship, then even though there would be a fine, we would be responsible to worship. But because this is in union of three of God's uh, primary uh, commandments, I don't think the church is in a catch-22. Um, and... I tend to be more cavalier about these things, and I've tried to be cautious. Um, and, yeah, undue fear. So, you know, we've never stopped worshiping because of the flu or the measles. We would ask people that have infections to stay at home. But part of the thing about this virus is you can be carrying it and not have any symptoms. You can even carry it and never have manifested a symptom. It's kind of like typhoid Mary. She walked around infecting everybody with typhoid and never had the symptoms herself. And I think that's part of the unique thing about this. You know, it's not I got red splashes on my face and, you know, I shouldn't be there or I'm, I'm coughing and I shouldn't be there. I mean, after I mean, one thing that I've been a bit appalled by before the churches did this were those that were, were disregarded public safety. Um, I can remember looking online at uh, our church uh, that uh, had the service but encouraged everybody that was older, 70, 65, 70 to stay home and everything. And there was this old couple there that uh, she has bad Alzheimer's, and uh, they were there when the elders said stay home. Another man that I know quite well was there. He should have been at home. And so they're endangering themselves and others as well. Uh, and so we have to we have to be thinking about others around us. And since I don't know if I'm a carrier, I've self-quarantined uh, and I'm still we, we had a discussion this morning. Should my wife go to the store? I said, do we need any essentials? And she said, no. I said, let's wait another week then uh, not to expose ourselves. And if we were carrying it, not to uh, expose uh, others. So I, I don't think it's a catch 22. I think that uh, we can genuinely serve God, submit to this request, as long as it doesn't get carried out for an interminably long time and unnecessary. Um, and the whole matter of fear is something that we should address maybe later in our discussions. But there's no undue fear about public assembly. As best I can tell, everything that's been said about the dangers of public assembly is uh, quite accurate. Thank you, Dr. Piper. And, and I think we also received a 
similar question, uh, just to give credit where credit is due, from student David Neal Melton Jr. of Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, though his student experience hasn't changed much since he was a distance student video conferencing into classes anyway, I do want to remark at this point in our conversation that all of us resident students at Greenville Seminary and instructors and faculty members, our experience has changed quite a bit now that we are all video conferencing in for class. And in some cases, faculty are going onto campus and uh, teaching in an empty classroom to use the technology that's there to broadcast out to the uh, out to the guys who are either at home in Greenville or at home elsewhere in the country. <laughs> so anyway, David and also anonymous uh, listeners, thank you for that question. It's an important issue, one that many churches are wrestling through and with, and um, and certainly these are not simple times, and, and in large measure without precedent, because the last pandemic that we've had on a global scale. Uh, we didn't have things like video live streaming and those kinds of things, which actually puts us into a whole nother uh, range of issues here. And we have a series of questions dealing with that, Dr. Piper, that I'd like to dive into, starting with from another anonymous listener. And he asks, is the pastor actually leading a worship service when no one else is present except for maybe audio video technicians? Can this rightly be called worship? Someone has said that recorded sermons are a record of what took place, but not actual preaching. Does this apply to the current situation for many churches where men are going through the elements of worship without anyone there to participate? For example, some churches played the hymns through, however many times, depending on the number of stanzas that had been chosen. Others had the pastor and his family singing, and ours had the songs mentioned, but those at home were encouraged to sing them after the service or live stream had concluded. What about the gathering, or what about the greeting and salutation being given and no one is there to receive them? The pastor hopes, but really has no idea if anyone is actually listening slash watching. This is, this is a fascinating question that really could only be asked in the 21st century. It is. And actually, uh, the last Lord's Day, I said to my wife, I said, this is not corporate worship. He says, what do you mean? I said, this is not corporate worship. And the churches, a lot of the churches are not realizing this, and I think are sending some signals that in the future uh, could play into the hands of those that say, well, it doesn't matter where I worship at home now because you're streaming the service live or whether I come in. So let's get two scenarios, Zach. Some churches are having, now again, I don't know how you can, you can do this any longer in South Carolina, where we can't have more than three in a room or something like that. But um, is that right? Yeah, that's the recommendation from Governor McMaster is avoid gatherings of three people or more. So my family is breaking that daily. Now he, he, Well, um, that's not a gathering. That's a family. <laughs> I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but so, but I, I think some churches are having a, a modicum of people there. The sound person is there uh, necessarily. Maybe the pastor's staff, pastoral staff or, or some family spread out. I think in that case, um, that group is there, could be worshiping, and you could have the elements of worship uh, in, in that service. Uh, but those who are at home, even though those in the building are worshiping, are not worshiping God corporately. Now, it's, it's fine to sing the hymns, uh, to follow the scripture and stuff like that. 
But we need to realize that we're not participating in corporate worship. We're participating in these elements as a family or people gathered in our home. In the case where there's some people in the room uh, and the pastor then wants to do the greeting and call to worship and a benediction, uh, directed toward those who are present. And I think that should be very important that those of you who are here, it's not something that is going to be given to us via the computer. Now, in the case where there is nobody there but the pastor and maybe in another room, the sound engineer, then it is in no way a corporate worship service. And I believe we should leave out everything but prayer, reading of Scripture and the sermon. And if they want to sing while they're doing this, that's fine. Um, long, it's good to sing either through it, through the activity or afterwards, but they're not together as the body of Christ. Now, to get then to some of the other elements of worship, uh, the questioner is correct that it is a record of a sermon if you're listening to a recording. And this is the one I've wrestled with because true preaching doesn't just have to be in a corporate worship service. So I have the opinion that if the word is being properly proclaimed by a lawfully ordained man, that if we're hearing that, we are hearing preaching. Uh, because preaching is simply not in corporate worship. So uh, if we're getting the record of it later, because we looked at a couple of services live, and then we looked at one that had been recorded before, there was a difference. So in two of them, the word was being preached, and we were under the preaching of the word. In one of them, it was a record of the sermon, which is not much different from reading a, a sermon. Thank you, Dr. Piper. That, that was very helpful guidance walking through the worship service in general. Drilling down on some specific elements, we have a, a question from an, another anonymous listener asking uh, about should the church practice communion while meeting virtually, and how about the other sacrament, baptism? And I think there's two ways of going about this. You have the way of, um, you know, you're not able to gather as the full body but maybe you do have a small group of 20 or 30 people or, or even 10 people or five people. Can they receive, should they be receiving the sacraments? Or uh, probably the more um, innovative way, and I'm not necessarily endorsing it, but the innovative innovation here that's being introduced of administering the sacraments to people who are at home, uh, but from a live stream. So there's two different situations here that I guess we could address. I was a bit appalled when we got this question that a session had actually uh, voted to allow its uh, members at home to take bread and wine and uh, uh, to have communion in that way. Uh, the Bible clearly is against private communion. Uh, and so in our tradition, even when we've had regular communion of the church, uh, we would not just take the elements to uh, a shut-in. And what we have done in our tradition is to uh, go, if the shut-in was able, and have a, uh, a, a shorter worship service. Some people would go with the pastor, at least one elder, a couple of others from the congregation. And there would be a regular convened worship service in the room or the home of the shut-in with all the elements of worship, an abbreviation, but the elements of worship and then the sacrament. So I think we can go from that to the two principles. If 
we, we don't have private communion at home. We don't have house churches without properly uh, ordained uh, church office bearers uh, uh, leading the sacrament. And it is a very keen violation for uh, a church to say, now we, we can't be here together. We're all going to do communion at the same time. Because part of communion is, is with the body. And Paul's very clear about that. To, uh, we're one Lord, one faith, one body. And we are to discern the body, the body of Christ, but also ourselves as the body of Christ. And I think that would be a, a, it would be a sin. But if there are a few people gathered at the church uh, and they had a regular worship service, then those that are at the church would have every right then to receive the Lord's Supper. The same is true with respect to, uh, well, baptism, we're even more restrictive. We don't do baptism outside the body of Christ. Um, and so we don't go baptize a baby in the hospital that's about to die. He doesn't need it. He's not going to be in the visible church, which baptism is a mark of that uh, of that membership. And so, again, we would not have any kind of, of private baptisms or uh, just in, in that case, a sick child that we would go have a worship service so we could baptize the child. Uh, that would be contrary, I think, to our standards in Scripture as well. And also contrary to our precedent, even... Um even in Calvin's day, I was reading about this in Scott Manish's uh, great book, Calvin's Company of Pastors. Um, superstition would flare up um, in families that had come out of Romanism into the Protestant movement, into the Protestant church. And uh, they would, if they had a sick child and they knew they weren't going to make it to the next Lord's Day for the baptism, uh, frequently they would take the child to the neighboring Roman Catholic priest in order to get uh, a, a baptism and then they'd get disciplined for doing that and in some tragic cases um there were there are records of men being disciplined for taking their dead infant to be baptized uh, by a romanist because the protestants would refuse to do that since it's just crass superstition and even sin as you said but this is relevant to me i'm glad that our that the listener gave the question as he did and, and I hope the answer was helpful. Um, but this is relevant to me because I have a one-month-old baby. We were going to have him baptized once you know we could arrange family from coming out of town to be there with us. And, uh, and now it doesn't look like the family is going to be able to come into town anytime soon. And so what do we do? Uh, does, does Samuel, my son, does he just go without that mark of a... Of, you know, covenant community membership until the pandemic has passed, or, or do I broach the subject with my pastors? I haven't yet done this, but do I broach the subject with my pastors and say, you know, ought we to bring him in uh, for one of these small group services that we're having on the Lord's Day that are being live streamed, and and have the baptism uh, performed in that context? You know, what do you think we should do, Doctor Piper? What, what's your take? Have you All given right. thought to this? I have. Let's back up. Just I was meant to have this at hand, uh, Westminster Confession on uh, the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper, paragraph 3. The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, and to take, the, take and break the bread and to take the cup. And they communicated also themselves to give both to the communicants but to none who are not then present in the congregation. 
So that's chapter 29, paragraph 3. Now, with respect to baptism, I can't believe you'd even ask your pastors that question. So I'm... Uh, I haven't yet. Okay, you said you were thinking about it, though. Well, I was thinking about what, what we ought to do. Do we... Um, because at our church, what they're doing now, or at least what they have been doing, since we have a, a large auditorium, is they have had a small group of people there. The interns, the pastors... Um, any ruling elders that are participating, the the music, the musicians have been there, and the sound guys. So, I mean, at that point, it's the size of some smaller congregations in our country meeting just in a very large auditorium. It looks pretty empty. And so I think they are having a legitimate worship services. It's not a contrived thing, um, though there are many more people participating remotely from home in that case. And, and I don't think they'll be administering the the Lord's Supper during this time of quarantine and self-isolation. But, uh, but I don't know that anybody's broached the subject yet about particularly infant baptisms, or I guess even adult baptisms if we had a new convert who, uh, who came to faith in the midst of all this craziness. But we have at least two infants now that have been born into the congregation that haven't been baptized, and I mean, how do you think we ought to handle this, Dr. Piper? Well, I think you use a very important word, born in the congregation, not into a uh, 1% membership of the congregation. This is something that the whole congregation needs to be involved in. We use the congregational vow uh, in, in our baptism, and that the church needs to be there fully represented. Uh, Samuel is in no danger not being baptized. And so... Uh, and so that's that commandment. Now, the other commandment is the sixth commandment. Uh, you're endangering Samuel to take him in public right now. I don't care if there's only 10 people there. Um, I think that would be uh, uh, very unwise. But it's just, you know, unfortunately, as, as Reformed Presbyterians, many of us have a too low view of the sacrament. And as we're seeing that, by God's grace, change, we don't want to get to the point that... Um, that in these extraordinary times um, that we might have to postpone uh, uh, the privilege of a sacrament because it's not threatening uh, to the soul of the child or the parents. That's helpful, Dr. Piper. That, was, that mirrors much of my thinking on the issue. I think the, the only hang-up I was running into in thinking about this is a little phrase in the Directory for Public Worship, chapter 56, paragraph 1, baptism is not to be unnecessarily delayed. But there is a necessary delay here related to the pandemic. Yeah, there's the important word, unnecessarily. Yeah. Well, that's helpful. In any case, I have heard of churches, even in our own denomination, in the Presbyterian Church of America, around the country, um, in several places, uh, administering, having already administered virtual mm. communion. And this is just for those who are listening, this has already been ruled out of order um, and an exception of substance um, out of accord with our standards and our Constitution uh, years ago in the 39th through the 41st General Assemblies. Uh, this was discussed out of um, a practice that was being introduced for a daughter church in uh, one of our presbyteries. And so I don't think that that precedent is gonna collapse under the weight of a coronavirus pandemic. And uh, 
I believe the proper response in this case is not to try to force an innovation into the worship of the church, but rather to communicate to our people that in this time when we are being deprived of the ability to gather together and enjoy the sacrament and benefit from this means of grace, we ought to grieve and pray all the more fervently for the Lord to turn back the pandemic so that uh, we might be able once again to sit at his table. Would that be the proper mindset to have, Dr. Piper? Yes, I think it would be very much. It's also, a lot of this is happening because a lot of our seminaries are not teaching a lot on the sacraments and worship. And so we've got pastors who don't have a solid biblical theological uh, foundation in terms of of what we're doing and why we do it. I mean, we see this in all the abuses with respect to the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's just that we're, we're not well grounded in the biblical doctrines and practices of, of the Reformed tradition. You know, I hope one, one redeeming quality of this whole pandemic is it causes us really to stop, pause, and seriously to think through some of our practices that have creeped into the church and even into our own personal lives and, and devotional practices and to interrogate them uh, against Scripture, comparing mm. what, what we do with what Scripture mandates. I think a lot of these questions are getting to the heart of issues and making people pause and, and think through things, certainly making me pause and think through things, and it's uh, it's been a benefit in that regard, though certainly I'm not saying this is a good situation, but I do think the Lord redeems it. Um, we, we have well, he promises to. Yes, he does. That's right. He's going to turn it all to the good of the church and to the glory of his son. So we have, uh, we have a few more, more general questions now. We've dealt with the specifics uh, in terms of our church's responses to the coronavirus pandemic, but now we have some more general questions. The first one comes from missionary Ray Call of MTW in Belize. And Ray asks, how should the Christian understand great disasters such as a pestilence in light of the Bible's teaching on God's judgments? Is it, is it appropriate to say that the coronavirus is a judgment from God? Is this a wake-up call from God for the church to repent of its worldliness and for the world to repent of its sin and to turn to Christ? Uh, thank you, Ray. And yes, I believe it is a judgment of God. Uh, I think Scripture is very clear that God exercises temporal judgments um, throughout history, uh, and not simply on the visible church, but on nations. You'll see in the prophets, uh, God pronouncing many judgments against the nations, even as he's pronouncing judgments uh, on uh, the church. We uh, would affirm that uh, God is sovereign, and as such, the natural calamity that's occurring is his holy will and it is sent for him by holy purposes, one of which is an exercise of judgment, which has taken place throughout the history, will culminate in the final return of Christ. So we think about the uh, corruptions of the world, but let's come just more closely to home in our own country a few days ago, we'd already had 100, over 140,000 abortions since January 1st, 2020. We perverted the holy relationship of marriage with sexual promiscuity, adultery, pornography, and sodomy. And uh, the great idols of our nation are sports and materialism. 
So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see uh, from Scripture that God hates these things and that uh, they're clearly being affected or as a nation that we are being affected or judged by God for our sins. Now, we have to be careful. We don't want to be like Job's friends and say, well, they, they got sick with the virus, and so you know, they, are, they must be terrible sinners. Uh, no, God works in, in multitude ways in his wisdom. Uh, judgment begins in the household of God. He's going to be chastening the church in a different way than he's judging uh, the nation, our nation and the nations of the earth. But I think it is appropriate for us to declare to the nations of the earth uh, and to our nation that uh, this is a manifestation of holy wrath of God against a worldwide and United States culture that is uh, increasingly uh, uh, rebelling against God in every area of life. Then as we look at the church, we see as well that this is a proper chastening of the church. And I think that uh, uh, this whole discussion of losing corporate worship, uh, our churches have increasingly profaned the Sabbath day. Many of our churches, probably now close, maybe a majority across the nation, quit having a second service on the Lord's Day. One was considered enough, and many things can get in the way of that one. Uh, we've taken lightly, and God has taken away, which He has done before as well. Uh, and in, again, the prophets speak of, of the famine of the Word. Now, we've had a famine of the Word in terms of faithful preaching in our country, uh, we have a famine of the Word with people's neglect of the Word. And so what God has done in this is to uh, take away these things that we might be humbled uh, for our, our sin and our abuse uh, of them. Uh, one of the other questions that was here, uh, some have gone so far to say that the state closing the worship services of the church in order to avoid the spread of God uh, is God God's blocking the true worship of Him by His church? And I think this is true, that God has um, done this to the church in order to uh, correct us corporately of our uh, neglect of the Sabbath, as well as other sins that are in the church now as well. I think it's also been a judgment, uh, not just for the church's neglect of public worship. You mentioned this in the piece which you wrote, The Lion Roars, which we'll link to in the show notes here for our listeners' benefit. But also, it's a judgment, and I say this humbly, reading Providence, and so, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I think it's a judgment on the church's corruption of worship and how oh, yes. we have innovated and and done things that aren't warranted in scripture and in fact have done things that are even prohibited in scripture um and brought them into into our practice uh in the church not just in america but even around the world and again i hope that this this whole situation causes us not to introduce more innovations 
and, and idolatrous practices, but rather to reflect on what we've done individually, corporately, congregation by congregation, you know, denomination by denomination, and how that, that has uh, fallen out of accord with Scripture and why the Lord might have brought this, uh, this you know, forced sabbatical upon us. You know, Zach, you're right, and we're not a reflective age. And this is going to be a wasted crisis if the church, its leadership, elders, pastors, deacons, uh, don't lead the church in, in reflecting on lessons. Uh, I touched on this in the article as well, but there's many lessons for the church corporately as well as for us individually. I was reading this morning or yesterday, Calvin and Psalm 41, and he says, uh, the scriptures in many places plainly and distinctly declare that God, for various reasons, tries the faithful by adversities at one time to train them to patience, at another time to subdue the sinful affections of the flesh, at another to cleanse, as it were, purify them from the remaining desires of the flesh, which still dwell within them, sometimes to humble them, sometimes to make them an example to others, and at other times to stir them up to the contemplation of the divine life. And I found that a very useful catalog to think in terms of, so why, why would God chasten the church, and why would God chasten me as an individual Christian? All of us are being chastened through this. If we are in any way, and who isn't in our country right now, affected by this pandemic? So, we must ask the question, both corporately and individually, what is God doing? And Calvin gives us a very useful catalog. In my article, I mentioned the first thing is, is that we should search our hearts. You know, is this, in my life, is this dealing with something that is an idol? Is this something for which God is correcting me here, particularly? Uh, because this, you know, does hit at our idols. I think of the great trauma people are having because of the cancellation of sports and and now perhaps even the cancellation of a college football season. Uh, if that causes grief in your heart outside of, well, I've got a legitimate pleasure that's been taken away, then you've got an idol there and God is telling you, you've got to address the matter of, of your idolatry. Uh, and so whatever you're being deprived of by this, you need to examine yourself. Is this something that I've put too much stock in? Um, even let's get to, all right, we pray, we're supposed to pray for our daily bread, but the store down the corner is open and I got a charge card. Uh, I haven't thought much about, have I, about God providing daily bread until suddenly I can't go to the store or I go to the store, it doesn't have the things uh, that I want. So we, we begin with ourselves, and the church do the same thing then, all right? If the church were faithful, let's just take, most of our listeners are going to be in confessional churches. If the church were faithful, what we will do now is take time, all right, um, God has removed corporate worship from us for a time of being. Why? Are there practices, doctrines, elements in worship that we're doing that are wrong, are we not doing things that we ought to be doing? Then we move 
as people do as well, then, well, if I don't find particular things, then what are the lessons that God wants me to learn here? And that's where Calvin's catalog from Psalm 41 um, is so, uh, so very useful. And so we all should be examining ourselves and profiting from this that will come out of it more godly, both as a church and individuals and as families. It's a unique thing in history. And we want our children to understand this as well and help them to think about what God's doing. You know, part of uh, part of the fight against, you know, going just crazy about the coronavirus is is to is not to talk about it all the time is to that's right know, refrain from making everything about coronavirus and we had a, um, a message delivered by one of the interns at our church a greenville seminary student from taiwan the other night and one of the and one of the things i found so refreshing about his sermon um on uh, the psalm that he had selected to uh to preach on that evening or to exhort from rather is that he didn't just focus on the coronavirus the whole time. It's not like every illustration was about the coronavirus or every application was related to the pandemic. You know, he uh, he made relevant applications and and had relevant illustrations, but it was a refreshing message precisely because it it seemed like, you know, this could have been preached or delivered, you know, whether there's a pandemic or not going on and it would make sense. And so in our family worship at home, um, I've been commenting on the pandemic some evenings and then other evenings. It's just been what we've been going through together as a family uh, regardless. And I think that's that's extremely important in these times. But we must cultivate that reflective uh, muscle, so to speak. We've got to exercise that, just as you've said. And, and uh, many of the questions here I appreciate because they are uh, examples of that. And uh, Ryan Simpson, to give credit again, where credit is due, of Newton, Kansas, also asked a similar question. Um, it, some have gone so far as to say that the state closing the worship services of the church in order to avoid the spread is God blocking the true worship of him by his church. We have a couple more questions here, um, again, dealing generally with repentance in light of the pandemic, and I think we should hit these as well. Don Partridge of Seattle, Washington, uh, has this to say and to ask, assuming this pandemic and the resultant societal disruption it has caused is a judgment on the nations of the world, what is our responsibility or duty to confess the sins of the nations of which we are a part? Is this something that we should, as New Covenant believers do, or is this an old covenant duty? Am I sinful because of those I live around or because of the culture in which I am uh, living? And then he, uh, he asks, I'm going to put all three of these questions out because they're all interrelated. He throws this out there. When Daniel prays in Daniel 9, 4 to 11, is he praying for only covenant people in other countries and not for foreign nations in general, as it seems? And then Bill Redinger of Virginia Beach, Virginia asks, can you provide any suggestions about how I can repent for the sins of my countrymen? And all of these questions are intertwined. So have at it, Dr. Piper. All right. Very good. Uh, thank both the gentlemen uh, for very important and thoughtful questions that have been in our minds, a lot of us in the last few years in terms of not current sins, but sins of the uh, past. So we first have to distinguish there. 
when we read Daniel or uh, Nehemiah, these other prayers of confession, we're dealing with current sins. They're not confessing that uh, my ancestors did this and I need to ask forgiveness. I think that is preposterous. Um, uh, if, if I have no affection for the sin that they committed uh, 150, 200 years ago, I have no responsibility to confess of that sin. But there is in the Bible the whole concept of corporate guilt. And I think this is both true uh, on a national level and an ecclesiastical level. So that I, what does Isaiah say? I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Um, and so we are living in the midst of these sins that God is judging. We're in a nation that is uh, head over heels tumbling into uh, awful corruptions and apostasies. And A, that should grieve us. If we're not grieved by abortion, by the abuse of marriage and sex, by the abuse of the Sabbath, we're sinning. And we must also realize that oftentimes in this that we are like the proverbial frog in the pot. The water is getting hotter and we are unaware. I read this morning in Proverbs, a uh, very important passage. It's been part of the uh, pro-life uh, movement uh, for uh, years. In Proverbs 24, 11, deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does he not know it who keeps your soul and we are not rendered to man according to his works? Uh, that uh, it's easy for us, except uh, on Pro-Life Sunday, to become complacent about, I, I have to confess this myself, it's a sin. Uh, my complacency about this wretched uh, murdering of the unborn infants. And uh, so we, William Perkins actually says when he's dealing with Isaiah 6 on uh, Isaiah's confession, he talks about a pastor who goes in the midst of a people who are more sinfully corrupt will not escape the corruption himself. I think that's just as true for a Christian who lives in uh, this very corrupt world. Look at Lot. Um, he, God called him a righteous man, but he still was being subduced and conformed by his culture. So we're in this and it's affecting us. We ought to repent of our own sins. But because we're corporately part of what's going on, that we should repent of current actions. That's, I think, the difference. We're not repenting for for past sins, we're repenting for current actions. The same then is true with respect to uh, to the church. Um, I never have kept the Sabbath perfectly, uh, and I confess that. But I also would mourn the fact that it is being so profaned uh, by professing Christians, increasingly so uh, in our day. Uh, when I look at, at the prophet's enunciation of Sabbath breaking, making it comparable, equal to idolatry. The reason, in fact, there's a parallel here, isn't there? Israel was 70 years in captivity 
to, um, so to speak, make restitution for Sabbath breaking. Now we are not allowed to keep the Sabbath in any kind of public manner. Uh, surely the line is pretty easy to draw from A to B that God is uh, severely punishing the church uh, for Sabbath breaking. So I think that's that's the big difference. No, I, I don't think it's just uh, Old Covenant. I think it's New Covenant. But these are current sins. I live in this society. I should mourn these sins. I should repent of my lack of mourning. And I should ask God to pardon our society, to withhold judgment, uh, but to grant repentance. Thank you, Dr. Piper. I think that brings a lot of clear thinking into the, into the situation, into the questions uh, as well. We've covered a lot of terrain in this uh, <laughs> In this conversation about the coronavirus, certainly if there are any follow-up questions as the pandemic continues to develop, we can address them on future Faith and Practice episodes, Lord willing. Um, but for uh, for today, I think we've we've covered enough to, to call it an episode. I'll give you concluding thoughts in a moment, Dr. P. But before I do, I just want to direct our listeners' attentions to the show notes for this show. You'll see them on your browser or even on your phone. I'm going to provide links to articles written by Dr. Piper, by um, some of our alumni, uh, an article which I wrote. And I encourage our folks to you know, check in on Reformation 21 and the Gospel Reformation Network. They are putting out some great reflections from pastors and missionaries uh, all over the country and around the world on this issue, on this uh, developing pandemic and the church's response to it, how Christians ought to be responding. A lot of helpful material out there that, uh, that I would commend to our listeners. Dr. Piper, do you have any concluding thoughts that you'd like to share before we dismiss? I, I think not, Zach. I think you summed it up pretty well. We humble ourselves. We seek God. Uh, Plead with him. Particularly, one thing we didn't, I had hoped to touch on today that we didn't, and out of the streaming, I mentioned this in my article. Because of fear in the general populace, I, I, I'm certain that many people who would never enter a church door are listening to these sermons that are being streamed. And we need to be praying, and we're praying for God to grant repentance for this. Well, here's a means of uh, conversion. And let's be praying for the preaching of the word throughout the world. And then, in our own case, uh, to take opportunities. And one of the things that occurred to me, reading a, a piece that uh, Paul Gibson, a pastor in Scotland, sent to me uh, about fear. Uh, as we engage our neighbors, we can you know, get them to talk about what they're afraid of. And, you know, what, nine times out of ten is going to be death. It gives us a great opportunity then to witness to them why they're afraid of death and what is the cause of death and how not to be afraid of death. So let's take advantage of, uh, of this and uh, be as, uh, as bold as we can with the gospel. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.